90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good. Just waiting for this ice storm to hit. <laughs> Do you have your bread, milk, and toilet paper, the <laughs> Oklahoma ice storm survival kit? That's right. My Brahms milk. I sure do. <laughs> uh, I did go to the store today, which was terrible. I'd put off going to the store for a long time, and then this happened, and it was mass chaos, which was even funnier because it was like 60 degrees today. So, right. You know, <laughs> the calm before the storm. <laughs> and I know that I'm a grown-up now because we actually have – my class has a lab final on Friday, and so I'm like, don't cancel school. Don't cancel school. Right. <laughs> so I feel real grown-up that, you know, I don't want school to get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, how about you? Well, been busy doing lots of stuff. Some fun things happening with my business at some point. I'll have to uh, – illuminate for folks mm -hmm. but i do have my christmas lights up now which everybody from last year knows what that means oh my gosh i can't wait to tweet you i'm just gonna randomly start doing it now <laughs> so yep if you at me on twitter the lights around my garage door and front door handrail flash so there you go <laughs> um so this is a impetus for me to figure out how to do some uh, script stuff so I can just have my Twitter, you know, ping you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you need a problem. Isn't that what you always say? You do need a problem, and <laughs> this would be a good one. <laughs> I, I I have right now, you know, it's scripted where normally my the outside lights come on and off with sunrise and sunset times, local sunrise and sunset times. Mm -hmm. uh, but so now I've got it changed where the Christmas lights go on and off with those and turn off in the middle of the night for power savings and some fun things like that. Oh, well, there you go. Um, I wasn't and As we are talking right now, Shannon just asked <laughs> me on Twitter, so... <laughs> I was just going to say, I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying because I was obviously writing that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of instrumentation, because I know you love it, uh, did you pick up the big Alaskan earthquake this last week? Uh, so I didn't have anything running locally to do uh. it in my house. Uh, most of that stuff's torn apart right now for some maintenance. Oh, okay. But I did make some plots, you know, some of my 3D movies, uh, from a few different seismometers around the country and was looking at the, the waves from it. They were yeah, very, very pretty waves. Uh, my friend lives in Anchorage, um, a guy I grew up with, and he posted some pictures on Facebook, and he was at the office when it happened, and their office is just trashed. It's unbelievable. His apartment was trashed and, you know, TVs, monitors all on the ground and ripped apart and everything, and... You know, he's he's a pretty pretty happy-go-lucky guy, and I think he got a little shaken up on that one, <laughs> literally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I say the waves were, were beautiful coming across the country, but it was scary for the folks there. And I know that we have some listeners in Alaska, and from yeah. what I've seen on social media, those folks are okay. But if you are one of our listeners in Alaska, I uh, know that we're thinking about you because that had to be a pretty scary ride. Uh, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, so... Maybe we'll talk more about what happens in Alaska in the future because they are no stranger to huge earthquakes, as maybe some of our older listeners know. Yes, and we will definitely uh, 
come back to that and talk a little bit more about this specific earthquake. But I didn't want to interrupt the sequence that we've got going now. And I also wanted to wait for a little bit more to be done, you know, maybe the first paper uh, summarizing some of the interesting things about this earthquake Mm -hmm. to come out. Yep. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So we don't want to interrupt my uh, climate talks. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. So the next climate talk, we've already talked about some with guest Lynn Sorgan, right? Right, exactly. So we talked about these snowball earth things a couple weeks ago, and that's just so, it's such a weird time in earth history. And to think that, you know, you had not only ice at the equator, but maybe solid ice all around the earth is really weird. And that hasn't happened since due to some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. Um, So we're going to go, if you get your handy dandy you know, Geological Society of America chart of geologic time out, which I know everyone has right by their computer, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're going to talk about the Paleozoic, but we're actually going to skip over a lot of the early Paleozoic and go straight to the late Paleozoic. But I kind of wanted to do some mostly climate fundamentals today, because like you said, uh, Dr. Lynn Sorgan covered a lot of what we're going to talk about in our previous show that we had with her. So you should look that one up if you're more interested in it. Um, but really, plate tectonics, I know we talk about it a lot, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> but it drives everything and it drives climate. So I wanted to talk about some things that plate tectonics can do to alter climate because it's actually quite a lot. Yeah, in fact, there are really kind of three major areas where plate tectonics can influence earth climate and they're all uh, due to plate tectonics but separate effects right yeah exactly um so when it comes to talking about post snowball earth and everything um you want to talk about where the land is but not just how much land because it's changed over time right we didn't start with all the land that we have now but where the land is, because that not only can disrupt ocean circulation, but it can disrupt atmospheric circulation too, mostly due to the differences in heating between um, land masses and the ocean. So that's the first thing. Right. So in general, the land is more reflective than the ocean, which is maybe not intuitive. Uh, yes. And that's real funny that you brought that up because I just quizzed my class on that and everyone was like, ocean, you know, light reflects off water. And I mean, no, no, not in this climate sense. It doesn't. (laughs) Well, I mean, you're really interested in longer wavelengths, right? Like the infrared radiation. Right. So visible light behavior, infrared behavior, different. Uh, Right. Exactly. And so where that land is, is a big deal. Um, But also how it's moved in the amount, because if you think about these big atmospheric circulations, right, what do we have? We have per hemisphere, we have basically three of these cells, these atmospheric cells. And that's what sort of makes up the overall climate belts that we have latitudinally. Right, so you've got the Hadley cell, the feral cell, and the polar cell. Right, exactly. And so the Hadley cell is bringing air at the equator, up or down, John? Which way? So it rises at the equator and gets Mm -hmm. transported poleward 
to somewhere and I think it's in the neighborhood of 30 degrees somewhere in there right exactly and so then it starts to come down so they're just these little if you're thinking about a cross section of the atmosphere they're these little convection currents it's exactly what happens in the mantle different time scales same physics right yep <laughs> air acts as a fluid um and so where it's coming down is actually where you have deserts form because sinking air isn't going to allow for convection and large-scale sort of rain to form and that's where you get deserts but that's another show <laughs> right and then you've got the feral cell which is sandwiched in the middle mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. so then it's it's the same sort of thing so where you have air that rises you get more rain and where you have air that sinks you get more arid climates and so this air that's rising around the equator if you have a lot of land near the equator you're going to get a lot of rain and therefore weathering in that area. And that doesn't just affect, okay, there's weathering. But what it does is it changes the makeup of CO2. That, well, not the makeup, but the amount of CO2. Number one, because you can essentially scrub CO2 from the atmosphere through rain. But also, when you start to weather silicate rocks you remove that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere due to the reactions of the water that's full of the CO2 with those rocks. And it starts to store CO2 as it weathers these rocks. And not to mention, having lots of land at low latitudes reflects a lot of incoming radiation to space and generally results in a cooler globe as well. Right, exactly. Um, so... Well, we, we hit one and three there because the weathering of silicate rocks is one of those big major influences on climate that directly has to do with where your land is. Um, and just like you said, the temperature too, due to the land versus water thing. And also movements of the plates that result in these volcanoes. And as we already talked about when we talked about Snowball Earth, those add CO2 into the atmosphere. And not just CO2, but they add aerosols. And that can... That could be a problem. <laughs> right. And one of my favorite, uh, so in several of the Icelandic volcanoes, the ones with the absolutely unpronounceable names that all end in yokel. <laughs> um, Which is actually JKL just together, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so one of those, uh, one of the big ones several years ago, you know, they had to cancel a lot of flights uh, because mm -hmm. there were so many aerosols in the air. It could get in the airplane image, airplane engines, damage them, so right. on. Um, and everybody's talking about how much carbon was being released in there, or how much carbon dioxide was being released into the atmosphere from the volcano. And if you actually did the math, that was a carbon negative event because the volcano released less CO2 than the flights that it canceled would have. Ah, 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 ah. That's amazing. I never saw that. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> so you're saying that, um, well, when we talk about the Cretaceous, we'll talk about how those volcanoes and the dinosaur airplanes work together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is hilarious. So volcanoes and, you know, we didn't really touch on this in the Snowball Earth episode, which I kind of want to touch on in here because that's how we got out of Snowball Earth because of all the CO2 that got spewed into the atmosphere, right? But you can't forget that volcanoes are also spewing these aerosols pieces of rock, right? Ash, all this stuff into the atmosphere as well. And when it does that, 
that actually acts to cool the atmosphere because those little things act as cloud condensation nuclei. So you can form clouds. Clouds reflect all this radiation and it can cool on a short term. And by short term, I mean like a couple of years. Right. So, yeah. In the end, the CO2 warming of volcanoes probably warms or probably wins out, but they can still provide a sort of instantaneous cooling in terms of the climate cycle. So that's Sort of a very anticlimactic volcanic winter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> um, so, sorry guys, John's not going to be joining us for the rest of the show, but... <laughs> so those things are all going on and this is where it's really hard right because you have to take into account all of these things when you're trying to figure out what the climate was like 300 million years ago and all of them are highly time variable and we have little information on them (laughs) exactly (laughs) um and we haven't even talked about ocean currents because that's real hard to figure out (laughs) Yeah. Um, as we move through this sort of marching through uh, Earth's past climate, um, ocean currents will become very important when we get to the Cenozoic. So the the closer to us, uh, 65 million years to the present, um, mainly because it's really hard to figure out how the ocean moved around. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's real hard to figure out. Um, but when we talk about land distribution, that's kind of a big deal as we move through the Paleozoic. Because by the end of the Paleozoic, we had this huge, and it was our last supercontinent that we've had, um, Pangaea was there. And so this <laughs> this bad boy blocked a lot of ocean circulation. <laughs> Right. I mean, you put a big chunk of land and the heat transport gets difficult. Uh, Right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, So converse to having, this was actually the first question on our, on our Earth's past climate exam we just had. (laughs) So converse to having all this land in the tropics where you get more reflection of solar radiation and you also have weathering of silicate materials. Um, If you have land masses that are located near the poles, it actually makes it really easy to start growing ice. It's hard to start growing sea ice out of nowhere, but just like these aerosols can act as condensation nuclei for clouds, it seems like if you have land at the poles, they can act as sort of nuclei for ice growth. And then if you have a lot of land at the poles, like all the land's touching, you can have really rapid ice growth. Um, So that's something as time went on through the Paleozoic, land was sort of poleward towards the end of the Paleozoic, and you had a lot of land situated down there, and you started to grow a pretty big ice sheet because of this. Right, but this is interesting because with land concentrated at the poles, globally the planet's warmer. Because you're storing more of that heat in the ocean since there's more incoming solar radiation at the equator and less at the poles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, yeah, <laughs> this is where it gets hard. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, this is, um, <laughs> there's kind of a cool evaluation of this sort of thing when we look at 
there's been a lot of glaciations during the Paleozoic. You can go back and look at these and say, were there ice sheets? Were there continents in the poles? Okay, great. So that, this is the polar position hypothesis. So that's, that supports that. Um, but then you can also have, you know, yes, ice sheets present. Yes, continents at the poles. No ice sheets present, but you have continents at the poles. So that doesn't support it. <laughs> So what right. does that mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just like and, you said, it's it's complicated. Well, and if you really want to complicate things. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> so then we could start talking about some of the other time-varying things. Like right now, if you look at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, it's moving you know, two and a half centimeters a year, something like that. Okay. Uh, spreading rate. So that's not all that fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know maybe an inch or so a year. But if you go back in time, uh, maybe 100 million years, we think that that spreading could have been up to 50% faster. Yeah, so that changes a lot too. (laughs) So then you get more spreading, more volcanic activity, more CO2. Mm -hmm. And it also, and we're going to get into this, that also acts to... um, you're sort of moving the whole ocean bottom, right? Because if you have rapid spreading rates and you got this big wide ridge, you're displacing a lot of water and that water's got to go somewhere. Right. But this is one of those things that probably lined up with trying to get rid of the ice sheets. In fact, about this time, we don't think there were any ice sheets. Right. Yep. That is exactly right. So, gosh, it's so... (laughs) I understand why my students get frustrated with this because it's very difficult. (laughs) It's a complicated system with lots of feedbacks and highly under-constrained. Highly under-constrained. Isn't that the, uh, (laughs) that's like the understatement of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're meteorologists, right? No, not really, but. (laughs) We we play one sometimes. That's right. (laughs) Something else weird happens. So you've got this late glaciation because you've got, continents at the poles but that's probably not all of the reason why it's happening um but the shape of pangea also acts very oddly on the atmosphere (laughs) right all right so (laughs) why is that um so you know that in india we get these monsoons this is now now not 300 million years ago, right? <laughs> right. Not, not geologically recent, human recent. Exactly. So India gets these monsoons. And what a monsoon is, it's just a change in the sort of normal wind pattern is what that means. And what it means for India is that during part of the year, they have all of their wind coming from sort of over the Indian Ocean. So... All that wind is very moisture-rich, just like when we have moisture-rich air from the Gulf here in the southeast and up through Oklahoma, we get big storms. So the same thing happens there. They get tons and tons of rain. And so they have massive flooding part of the year. And then the other part of the year, the winds change the other direction. So they're coming off of the high Tibetan plateau. They're really dry. And you get really dry conditions i mean drought conditions so you go from flooding to drought you basically switch back and forth based on the wind direction and the driver of that is the tibetan plateau which is basically this 
really high elevation brick sitting to the north of India, right? And as it heats up or it cools down, depending on the season, it changes the direction of the prevailing winds. So Pangaea has this too, but it's huge, <laughs> real big. Right. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, because we're humans, it's called the Mega Monsoon. <laughs> 9,000. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Trademark. Um, <laughs> so Pangea is this weird, and we call it <laughs> Pac-Man-shaped. All right. So Pangea is this Pac-Man-shaped thing where in the Northern Hemisphere, you got a wad of continents. In the Southern Hemisphere, you got a wad of continents. And as the Paleozoic closed, these continents both came together. And in the center, you've got not as much land, but this big high mountain range. Okay. And what happens is because of the way this huge, um, <laughs> this huge Pac-Man, I can't get away from it. It just looks like a Pac-Man. <laughs> this huge shape is, it sets up this mega monsoon and you have extreme seasonality in here because you've disrupted this zonal flow like we have now today um we have those zones that you talked about earlier you disrupt this due to the fact that you've got you know during the northern hemisphere summer you heat that northern hemisphere part of the pac-man a lot you set up this low pressure system and you suck in all the air crosses zonally right so you have um this mega monsoon there and you're sucking in all this and you make the northern part really wet because it's sucking in air from the Panthalassic, the big ocean that's there. And vice versa, you've got a high-pressure um, high cell that sets up in the southern part, and it makes it really arid. So this disruption of zonality due to the presence of this big hunk of land creates this extreme seasonality throughout Pangaea. And that is real hot. <laughs> right, and so there's a little bit of jargon in there that I want to clarify so uh, (laughs) when you have general atmospheric flow from let's say west to east or Mm -hmm. could be east to west sure uh that is roughly parallel to rings of constant latitude Mm -hmm. that's called zonal flow right and when you have airflow that's dominantly north to south along lines of longitude or south to north uh, that is called meridional flow so a few terms that you might hear thrown around in here. Right. Well, no, I'm done talking about them now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so, so the difference in that zonal flow, once you start this meridional flow, because of the way we're set up, that's where you start to get, you know, these changes in these large-scale monsoons. So that meridional flow brings in moisture from the different parts of the ocean where you wouldn't normally get it if you're set up in a zonal pattern, which is what happens in India today. Right. And this is much different. And this is climatologically averaged flow, not you know the normal kind of synoptic scale, you know, continent scale, weekly propagating waves type flow. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, and, and this gets, re- how do we know this? It gets recorded in the rocks, right? Right. I mean, we've talked in the past about rocks being able to record things as small as discrete storms, but generally averaging out to something more like climate instead of 
more local, uh, you know, even seasonal events. Right, exactly. And you can tell this, and, you know, uh, Dr. Sorgan talked about this when we interviewed her. You know, you can tell these wind changes. Um, not only can you tell the difference between arid and wet rocks, which actually isn't as easy as you would think, but you know, rocks that are deposited in an arid environment versus those that are deposited in a more tropical type environment. Um, you can also talk about these climatological, these large-scale wind patterns um, by using zircons. And I know we've talked about zircons before on the show and how you can use them to figure out the age of rocks, but it's the same thing. You can move these little guys in the wind and figure out where they came from. And so if you're going to have those kind of wind patterns, that's not recording a storm, right? That's recording a large or a long-term, you know, northwesterly wind or whatever direction it is. And that's actually how we figured out some of this um, meridional flow that got set up in Pangea is by looking at these little zircons that got stuck up in the air. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of the climatological or the atmospheric portion of that. So when I said that the two parts of the Pac-Man, I thought that was the jargon you were going to break down, (laughs) (laughs) Pac-Man. When the two parts of the Pac-Man got sealed together, that did some crazy stuff to the ocean, which I'm not going to go into because I'm not a huge um, expert on that. I'm not even a little expert on (laughs) the ocean flows there. But what it did do was... It was a big orogeny, which is jargon for a big mountain building event. And so we created these huge mountains right on the equator. (laughs) So remember number three, which was about how we weather rocks? So what do you think big mountains right on the equator are going to (laughs) do? Well, so you got lots of weathering going on because you're in a moist climate. Mountains, you have mass wasting going on Mm -hmm. as they break down and fall down, which is another form of weathering that's going to end up sequestering some CO2. Uh, let's see, what else would you have going on there? So yeah, steep slopes, mass wasting. Uh, mm-hmm. You you probably wouldn't have mountain glaciers since they're close to the equator, but you would have still a lot of precip. So in the end, you're taking a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere and you're going to tank the temperature of the planet. Right, exactly. Um, so you said something that I'll have to come to Dr. Sorgan's defense and she's not here to defend herself is that you said that you probably wouldn't have glaciers at the equator. Well, she thinks there are, so. <laughs> I mean, I think there are, too. <laughs> She's got lots of evidence for that, but that's another, that's, the, that's another whole podcast. <laughs> but you said mountains disrupt, you know, atmospheric circulation. You know, you just have this thing called the rain shadow effect. So one side of the mountains is going to be arid, one side's going to create a lot of precipitation, and you start to weather all these silicate rocks, and it just draws down a ton of CO2, and it stores it in the long-term part of the carbon cycle because you're weathering these rocks, moving them along. They get sequestered. They sequester all that carbon. So, yeah, that's a good way to uh, that's a good way to start to cool it down. And the higher the elevation of landmass that you have, which is actually really hard to tell, paleo elevation. Um, a lot of people work on this, but it's still really hard to tell. It's, it's hard to tell that, you know, there was a mountain range there in the first place. It's even harder to figure out what the elevation was. But if you have a lot of high land, supposedly, because Earth wants to get to a constant state, you're going to have a lot more weathering, right? Because you've got to get rid of all that high elevation to start to even out the Earth's surface. So that's a big 
area of research now is to figure out what these paleo elevations were and how that affected the rates of weathering. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's really hard. We should find somebody to talk to about that. <laughs> right. So we've hit a lot of the major drivers of this, but how deep do you want to go into the actual timeline of events here? Uh, you know, there are some, there's some ice. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I wanted to highlight, um, all those sort of things that you have to be looking at to figure out what your CO2, like what's the, what's the dominant thing that's happening? Because that's going to affect, you know, the driver of your CO2, because you can have all this stuff happening, but if you have huge amounts of volcanism going on that's probably going to drown out all these things that are taking co2 out of the atmosphere and huge amounts of volcanism could be these you know spreading ridges that are going on at really high rates or they could be big flood basalts which are also happening at this time right and so i mean you have high spreading so you've got uh, subduction happening very fast feeding lots of that sequestered carbon down getting melted and producing very active volcanic times right exactly and so this has been ongoing because basically for the last part of the paleozoic you're working towards building that supercontinent and so these altering climate states are happening throughout the paleozoic all right so we've worked up to this pangean climate that's or this pangean continent that's around at the end of the paleozoic and we have this late Paleozoic ice house. And while the snowball earths, the Proterozoic, so a long time ago that we talked about, were pretty drastic. In fact, the whole earth was a glacier. They didn't last as long as this long-lived ice house that we were in towards the end of the Paleozoic. Um, So there was a tiny glacial that was earlier on then this huge one where all these things that we just talked about acted together to draw down CO2 more than CO2 got added to the atmosphere and you started to glaciate everything. In fact, maybe even having uh, glaciers at the equator at high elevations um, during this time period. So it's weird because our ice house climate we're in now was nowhere near as long, but it's also something that we want to study because we're in an ice house climate now. And it turns out that we come out of this, and we're going to talk about this next time, we come out of this and we go real hot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that transition out of that going into a hot house climate where you don't have any glaciers at all is kind of maybe what we're looking at now in terms of our geologic present. And so that's why this is such an interesting time period to study and why it's important because this has only happened a few times in Earth's history. Right. And we can extract some information, but there's no time like the present where we're not relying on things that may have been deleted or altered in the rock record. (laughs) That doesn't happen. What are you talking about? Rocks are a constant recorder of all the conditions. <laughs> oh, they're not at all. 
Yes. Lies <laughs> geologists tell themselves to sleep at night. Oh, it's so true. So true. Um, so even though it's a long period of Earth's history, you kind of condensed it because there's one really big ice house. And we kind of went through how you take all that CO2 out of the atmosphere to get that really big ice house. And then we'll see what happens when you melt all that ice. <laughs> It's going to get interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your flippers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I think we will save the transition to hothouse climates for next time, like you mentioned, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. We will dive into that. <laughs> <laughs> next time as we go into the Mesozoic. Exactly. Which means that to keep this show under an hour, unlike we've been doing recently, <laughs> it's time to move on to everybody's favorite part of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! I do not like this at all. So I picked this paper specifically for you. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it really hurt me, actually physically, but we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> It was real mean of you um, to talk about cactuses. Yeah. So this paper specifically <laughs> is the influence of cactus spine surface structure on puncture performance and anchoring ability is tuned for ecology by Crofts and Anderson. <laughs> puncture performance. I love it so much. <laughs> so this paper is all about how cacti have evolved different types of needles to be more performant and how those are similar to needles or uh, ornamentation that animals have evolved to protect themselves you know this surprises me not one bit and we've had fun papers on here before that talk about the sentience of plants and right. i will tell you <laughs> spending six weeks in colorado in southern colorado at the elevation I do, there's a lot of cactus, and they are cacti, and they are all sentient beings. <laughs> yeah, and so they talk about several different types of cacti in here, but the one I want to focus on is <laughs> everybody that's been to field camps in this area anyways, favorite friend, the choya. Oh, don't do it. So there's a lot of mythology around the choya. So <laughs> the choya are those sort of they're not the paddles or the round barrel cacti they're those ones that are kind of long and skinny and they have tons of segments and they can be anywhere from just one cute little segment on the ground and you're like oh look at that cute cactus to seven feet tall and seven feet around full of full of anger and hatred <laughs> i mean they're kind of like um sausage link cactus <laughs> yes yeah they are yeah they really are yeah. that's exactly it except for really spiky um and so what we've always been told as a student out there is that the choya needles are terrible because they have not only do they produce neurotoxins which they don't really talk about a lot in this paper but they're also barbed so they're even harder to get out of your skin Right. And choya are particularly evil because each of those little sausage links is designed to easily break off and <laughs> let the whole thing embed into you. <laughs> <laughs> so every year this happens and you're walking around and you're like, gosh, man, my leg really hurts. And you look down and you've got this cacti sausage link stuck in you. <laughs> That's exactly right. And as they point out in the paper, 
it's much harder to get the cacti with barbs out of your skin. Their puncturing, uh, puncturing performance is very high. And interestingly enough, so I, I would not have thought this to be the result after reading why I could say, okay, yeah, I see that now. But barbed needles are also easier to get into the skin. Right. I was surprised at that too. I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's just, if you think about fish hooks, it's the same thing too. You know, it well, depends I mean, on how the barbs are pointing, right? A smaller, the barbs provide a smaller area of contact mm-hmm. so that for the same amount of force, the pressure goes up. Yeah. So if you've got, I, you know, know, 20 pounds of force <laughs> on that little thing, then the pressure goes up and the pressure is what's critical for creating the initial uh, fracture. I mean, in rock, this is this is rock mechanics, but with skin instead of rock, you're wondering about the fracture <laughs> toughness of the material and what it takes to form that initial fracture, because then it's much easier to propagate that fracture. This is hilarious. I love it's all the same physics. No one should major in anything but physics. Why do we even offer anything? <laughs> I mean, then you're going to have people that argue that, well, physics is just applied math, so you should major in math. But mm, That is true. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have that argument. Don't worry. Uh, so I said to you, John, before the show, and right now it's happening again, looking at these pictures actually, like, makes my mouth water in terms of not because they look delicious, but it's like my remembered pain indice. <laughs> it's right. coming back, and it, like, it actually kind of gives me, like, the shivers and... It totally makes my mouth water thinking about it because those choya are so painful. And because of the neurotoxin, maybe it's because of the barbs. Um, once you get them out, the pain does not go away. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> right. I mean, and we would carry you know, needle nose pliers and or vice grips. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To this get these out. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> They're real big. Yes. Um, <laughs> we had a You student. think giving blood is bad. Exactly. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I don't know if it was a year that you were there. Um it was one of our geology students. He fell and he put his hand down, which this happens every year, but he put it down right in the middle of a choya. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I know. I've got the shakes now. Um and he this happened the first week and by the end of the 6 weeks, he was still pulling needles that were coming to the surface out of his hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, and so this is... Oh. The cool thing about these barbs is, similar to porcupines and other things, the barbs deploy. So God. it goes through the skin, and then when you try to pull it out, the barbs actually start winging out to provide more resistance. And though the barb deployment on a cactus needle is much less efficient than that on a porcupine quill. (laughs) It's still efficient enough to make the force required to withdraw the needle significant. I've never understood people that couldn't handle like blood or the sight of wounds, but this thing is going to make me throw up. (laughs) (laughs) Staying that is too much for me to listen to. (laughs) Well, so let's go to the methods because that's a little bit more lighthearted. Okay, great. <laughs> so what I was really afraid of when I first opened up this <laughs> was the methods section. <laughs> because if you're trying to talk about the puncturing ability of cacti, what are you going to use? I got real nervous that undergrads was the answer. 
<laughs> I, I think there are some ethics boards that would have issues with that. <laughs> Until they have to be around some of these undergrads, and then they're like, nope, go ahead. <laughs> That's true for all students. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pick on undergrads. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they didn't use this, but they did use the tried and true human equivalent of pigs. <laughs> yeah, so pigskin and chicken breast from the grocery store <laughs> and a synthetic mixture that's a skin simulant. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's some really gross pictures of this where you are looking at <laughs> what tissue is left over on these spines once you pull them out. <laughs> Right. Uh, and so the way they did this test was they secured cactus needles to an Instron load frame, which is literally what we <laughs> use to compression test rocks. That's awesome. <laughs> and they would put the, the slab of whatever under there, the gel or the meat, and they would insert the needle and then pull it back out. And in the graph, you see a stress buildup and there's a little drop when you actually get the puncture and then there's some more stress buildup that is the work that's going into propagating that fracture as you get to a larger needle diameter and then they pull it out and in some tests they had to pull the needle back 300 percent of its insertion oh, displacement oh to get clearance of the skin because it was pulling the tissue up with it oh it had to be the choya cactus <laughs> um so if you look at this graph i mean you can make an earthquake out of this right well especially i mean the first part the initial buildup, and then mm -hmm. the fracture that yeah. is the earthquake process yeah that's awesome except for yeah uh, these are very similar to graphs that i made in the lab when i was doing my phd work <laughs> except i generally didn't do the retraction part uh yeah it's kind of hard to do that with an earthquake <laughs> right uh 300 percent. yeah that doesn't surprise me one bit <laughs> and then they said one of them uh they the load frame ran out of displacement so they couldn't measure the displacement required they just had to go up and pull on the meat until it came off but measure oh, the force <laughs> also not surprising at all <laughs> um i love this sort of the morphology studies, um, what do they call it when they're talking about comparing it? Biomechanical convergence, right? So this model works not only for cacti, but for porcupines, like you said, and other things with spines. And that's real interesting. Right. So plants, animals, all evolving similar solutions to the identical problem of mm -hmm. trying to... And I, I also didn't realize this in the paper. I always thought needles were purely a way to keep animals from getting at the water in the cactus. Right. Mm -hmm. But they serve yeah. a lot of other functions. Uh, yeah, I was uh, surprised by that too. Um, yeah, don't eat me seems to be the, the obvious one, um, which I will say that I have seen cows take down entire choya and i that's the that cow is an impressive cow that can do that <laughs> right uh, but they also do things like even though they're small needles they apparently provide a respectable amount of shade and uv protection and hence decrease the evapotranspiration from the plant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the coolest one is they disturb <laughs> the boundary layer around the plant and make it more turbulent so that less water gets taken away by wind. Oh, gosh, that's crazy. That is so crazy. But brilliant, right? I mean. Hmm. Yeah. 
And yeah. I mean, boundary layer meteorology is an interesting thing, but this is a new <laughs> micro scale of boundary <laughs> layer meteorology. <laughs> so I wonder if you can measure the effects of like some huge fields of, you know, as you're going out towards Colorado, there's all through New Mexico and Texas, there's huge fields of Choya. I wonder if it's of a scale large enough that you could actually start to measure that. Yeah. Uh, possibly. I know there have been some studies over different kinds of crop fields. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I remember I calculated what it... So if you had a, a relatively high wind speed, like say a windstorm that's blowing through a forest, so that kinetic energy is getting transferred into the trees. Right, okay. And mm-hmm. so I calculated what the temperature rise would be from a windstorm going through a forest. Oh, wow. Just sort of order of, of magnitude. Now, I think it came out to like a degree Kelvin order of. Uh, but that that's was still, the... That's still kind that, of that was, that was a frictional dissipation. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, that's really neat. Hmm. All right, we'll have to get some... Get, get working on those little stations. We'll get them set up along the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a really cool, fun paper, even though, like I said, it makes my mouth water with pain remembrance. But <laughs> Yeah, looking at the picture of Choya, uh, I remember we were doing a GPR survey uh, when I was TAing <laughs> field camp. And, uh, of course, none of the students wanted to deal with it. So I remember going up there with a machete and chopping down a huge path through the Choya so that we could get a GPR through there. <laughs> oh, man. They'll come back at you. I know it says they're passive, but I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cut off everything real low. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, I mean, it, it is bad because if one little one gets into you, it pulls the whole plant into your side, and then you're kind of in trouble. Yes, yeah, I did that on my shoulder this last time. This is the one I'd gotten away for several years without having any major, major problems. But this last year, I backed into one, and the whole little sausage oh. came off. Yeah, exactly. And it was right in the spot where it took me a long time to get it all out. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yep. Great. Thanks for bringing that back. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> Well, if you have a fun paper that you would like to hear us discuss or your preferred method for removing choya needles and helping ease the, the pain <laughs> afterwards, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. Please remember to make John's lights blink by pinging him at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Together, we're at Don't Panic Geo. You can find us in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for making all of this possible. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Thank you.